the sense of just just try it just trust it and you might not like it but come anyway you know and and see what you get out of it we Hosh Bosh with Anita and Sara This podcast is powered by Foundry a hybrid progressive art space located in downtown Dubai's Boulevard It includes exhibition spaces co-working environment a creative library podcast room and a cafe Hi Sara Hey Anita Our guest today is Bill Bragan and at some point in the interview Bill says that he almost forgot to mention how fun the programming at NYU Abu Dhabi is where he's the founding executive artistic director of the Art Center um but I don't think he even has to mention it because when he talks about all the shows that are going on like I want to go see them immediately whether they're 8 hours long or 6 hours long or 27 hours long right yeah 100% I think the programming at NYUAD Art Center was one of the things that I very much took for granted when I was a student there and having bill in this room almost felt like this infectious energy that makes me want to drive to Abu Dhabi and attend everything again I actually will do the marketing for bill and say if you have never been to a program at the NYUAD Art Center you really must because I will let bill tell you why you must but I vouch for what he says Bill Bragan has been given the power and the responsibility and rightly so to shape the landscape of the performing arts in the UAE specifically in Abu Dhabi um and I think he's doing so well with that I mean a lot of the shows that I've been to in my life were just because I was on campus and I happened to be next to them and they changed my life for the better um and I think we're all very lucky to be in such close proximity and Bill and the Art Center are trying to do all they can to make it the space as accessible as possible to everyone and everyone like you are invited to go and see the show. Yeah, and before you do go see the show, please stay tuned all the way to the end of this episode because Bill's insights are really very very interesting. Um and it was absolutely our pleasure to have him in the studio for an hour. Enjoy. Doing well, doing well. Glad to be here. Thanks for making time. We know you're flying out to Venice tomorrow. Um so first question to kick things off is Bill, you do so many different things. You have so many different roles and unlike visual arts, performance arts are time is more present in them. Like we were just talking about the show Gaths which was at uh, uh NYU Abu Dhabi around 2 years ago and that show is 8 hours long. And you said you watched it 6 times. Yes. So my question is when when you have to commission new works and that means looking through so many different pieces as well as having like when they're showing you also have to watch them then how do you have time to look through all of it and decide what you like when you have so many other roles and responsibilities that is probably actually the hardest part of my work is that you often are finding that you don't have as much time to do the viewing that you need to do uh to make your judgments i think uh when i was in new york i would go out two to three night two two to three times every night i should say so i've always presented a broad range of arts so music of all kinds dance spoken word theater 
So it's impossible to keep up on it. And in New York, there's always so much going on. So really, like the only way to do it is to just go out a lot and see a lot of work. It's harder to do that here. You know, here, largely, if there's something happening in the UAE, it's either because I presented it or there's another organization that's presented that artist, which means that that artist already has a champion. The work's already been seen. So my work isn't necessary. So I end up doing much more in terms of viewing on videos and it's hard to find time uh, to watch. I have thousands of unread emails or emails that I've saved as unread in my inbox. And each one of those has an attachment or a link that represents time, right? And so I'm aware that if it's one song, maybe that's three or four minutes, it might be a full length dance piece or a theater piece and it's like an hour to an hour and a half. And uh, yeah, it hangs over my head all the time. <laughs> And so I try to go to a lot of festivals. I, you know, when I do go away, I'm going after Venice, I'm going to go to New York and I'll see, I think I'm in New York for about five days and I'll see at least seven or eight performances in the time that I'm there. And so I just try to get as much new information as I can while I'm away. And when you're working with artists from all around the world, um, how do you find new people, especially before, the, if you're the first one to commission them, for example, do you go by references or do you just explore on the internet? So... When I'm commissioning work, it's different because commissions are typically with artists that I've already worked with and I've got a relationship. There's so much risk involved in commissioning. Uh, and so you have to really have a certain level of trust, both in terms of uh, a belief in the artist and the quality of their work, but also a belief in the process because you're really embarking on something. So for an artist that I haven't worked with before, typically... I would present work that already exists and artists that are on tour. And so that's that's one part. And those artists have been doing this for a really long time. So uh, many of the artists I work with are people that I've worked with before in, you know, in various previous jobs, either at Lincoln Center or Joe's Pub of the Public Theater, or even going back to people that I worked with when I was in college because I started presenting concerts when I was an undergraduate. And those relationships are still live. Uh, so... For the presenting, it starts with that, and then I've built a really broad network of relationships with agents and managers and artists, artists who I've worked with before who then recommend other artists because they understand my sensibility. And so often the reference of the people that you've worked with before is the strongest reference because they, they, have, they have a sense of what what I respond to. Uh, and then there are also cold calls, you know, and I, you know, my inbox is filled with people who are pitching me. I try to I try to kind of look at as much of that as I can. I think that that's the that's the hard part. I think on the artist side, I've been listening to a lot of the other episodes of the podcast, and I know there's the from the artist side, there's always this void about like what happens and nobody you know nobody responded. I think Vamako was talking about being ghosted by editors and so on. Part of this was sometimes like a it's just a simple amount of kind of time and capacity, and I've tried to be as open to kind of new kind of new relationships and, and checking out something when it comes to me, but it's literally impossible with just how many hours there are in the day. Oh, which is what makes me even more flattered that you've joined us today um, and even made time to this in some of our episodes as well. Could you tell us a bit about what you gravitate towards? Well, like when you're reading about a new piece, what normally excites you? What are you looking for? 
It depends on the art form to some degree, but I, I sort of joke that I tend to respond to art of all kinds that requires a lot of hyphens to explain what it is. I, I'm interested in hybridity. I'm interested in art that's working in liminal spaces. I'm interested in art that uh, is using references that might be familiar, but using it in a way that I haven't heard before. So novelty, not with like a capital and novelty song kind of novelty, but I'm interested in in something that uh, that will sort of open up a way to think about music or dance or theater in a way that I haven't kind of heard it or seen it or thought about it before. I want to take this opportunity because we jumped straight into things really, really fast, and I think that's amazing, but I think we might be doing that because we know you very well and you know having gone to NYU you were always a person we ran into we knew what you do but I don't think a lot of the people unfortunately who listen to this podcast would know because NYU Abu Dhabi is so secluded and bubbled off even though the art center is very public facing um, so maybe you can tell us a little bit about what it is that you do how you define your responsibilities and I guess in a way how you came to be here from the New York where you were out three times a night. So what's really funny though is you, you kind of talk about how we know each other really well and in kind of listening to the podcast I realized I don't know that we actually ever really had any substantial conversations within the university in like four years. I think we were in the same space a lot. And so I think there were lots of like nods of like hello and acknowledgement, (laughs) but actually not real conversation. So so I was actually excited for the invitation from that standpoint. Uh, So in terms of what do I do, the Art Center is a multidisciplinary performing art center. We're presenting music and dance and theater and film and lots of hybrid work that requires a lot of hyphens to explain what it is. and we, it's open to the public. Pre-COVID, it still don't know quite where where our audiences will be now. But before the pandemic, probably about eighty-five percent or so of our audiences came from outside the university. So we really are one of the major performing arts centers for the UAE as a whole. And at the same time, the artists who come are also deeply uh, integrated into the curriculum and part of the university. And then they're doing workshops and master classes and really working to help develop the larger artistic ecosystem. So I came to be here because I was recruited. Uh, I have <laughs> I have a very broad network of colleagues in the field who are arts presenters in the kind of the broadest category, and there's uh, one woman in particular, Rachel Chanoff, who has an organization called the Office for Performing Arts and Film, based in New York, but they consult for lots of different organizations. So they they program the Celebrate Brooklyn Festival in New York. They program the performances at Mass MoCA, the Massachusetts Museum of Contemporary Art, the film festivals. Uh, Rachel has consulted for Sundance. So we go back probably a 20 year plus history together. And her company were consultants for NYU when they were developing the plans for the Art Center. So they really developed the mission statement. They developed the structure, the projections for staffing and finances and so on. And then she was also on the search committee. And so uh, in the way that happens when you're recruiting, uh, she called me up one day and said, hey, you know, you're really well networked. I had started a uh, uh, presenters network in the U.S. that was organized loosely around what is referred to as world music, although nobody likes it. And uh, and so she kind of approached me 
and said, we're working on this interesting project. Maybe you know somebody who you might want to send it to or recommend it to. And then I started going through the list of uh, kind of understanding what the opportunity was and going through my personal list of what I'm looking for in my work. And then all of a sudden I said, yeah, I think I know somebody. And so I threw my threw my own name in, in the ring. And that was in February of 2014. Uh, went into the interview process. Uh, came to the first graduation for NYU in 20 uh, in 2014 in May. And then by October, I started at NYU and then moved here in December, just in time for National Day. Wow. Um, I guess you're in a very interesting position being at this, like you said, one of the most important performing arts centers in the, in, in the country, um, and it being situated within uh, an academic institution where it's almost in between being, I guess, for the UAE publics, but also a space that's very important for the students who are there. Um, and it's funny you said we, we didn't know each other when we were when I was at the when I was a student of the art center, but somehow you managed to come across the piece that I recently wrote for El Circal online about why I don't hate institutions anymore. And it's funny, Sri actually sent me a message being like, "Hey, hey, do you follow Bill on Twitter? He's just <laughs> tweeted about your article." Um, and I bring this up because I am really interested in how you see the position of NYU and your position within NYU, within this idea of the institutional landscape here, what the potential of the institutional landscape here has for positive growth for this country. Yeah, institutions are weird because I think there is this idea of the institution as sort of a big nameless bureaucracy that is super anonymous. and. Most of my career has been working within institutions, and so my experience is that institutions are just filled with people. You know, and my personal orientation tends to be coming from more of a DIY approach, and I come from sort of a grassroots orientation, but I've almost always done that within places that have a certain kind of institutional weight. So I, you know, I ran Central Park Summer Stage, so I was presenting a multidisciplinary performing arts center in you know, the kind of in the people's park in, in the middle of Manhattan or at the public theater at Joe's Pub where uh, you know, Joe Papp, who Joe's Pub was named after, also created the Free Shakespeare in Central Park and also gave birth to a chorus line and hair and, and the public also kind of brought Hamilton to the world and, and then Lincoln Center. So I've worked in these big institutions, but... I've always been essentially the same kind of the same kid that I was when I was 15 years old, which is my, my Twitter bio, my social media bio is uh, imposing his taste on friends and strangers since 19 or whatever. And basically that's what I've always done is I've sort of been a fan of, of arts and then wanted to share that. And so within the context of the Art Center, which also has literally the most generic name that you can imagine, uh, I, did, I did change it from a lowercase the to a capital the because I wanted to own the article. Uh, but one of the things that we do at the Art Center is either me or another member of the staff is on stage introducing the show at the beginning of every show because I don't want it to be anonymous. I don't want the, the sort of institutional weight is less important than no there are actually people here and i've made a decision to bring a certain artist that i want people to experience their work 
And so I'm always very aware of those kind of issues of the sort of curatorial power and and it not not being an institution that's doing it, but it's like, no, they're individuals who thought that this is work that's worth seeing that will open up some conversations that we want to open up. And so that that has been, I think, a big part of how I've approached the work. And I think within the university, previously, whether it was Joe's Pub or, or Lincoln Center, it's mostly I've been at festivals or nightclubs where you bring the artists, they do a show, and, and then it ends. And so over time, I've built really strong relationships with artists, but it's only in this role here, working within the context of the university, where the artists are coming for a week at a time, and we're having meals with the artists to welcome them to the community. We are, you know, they're doing workshops and master classes and having career talks and they're in the classrooms. And so it's a much deeper level of engagement, which is also, I think, for me to also just like learn and to slow down that experience. So it's not so transactional. It's sort of the shift from from transactional to more relational, uh, relational mm-hmm. approach to the arts. I think that has also been a big part of it for me. Is there a particular experience that you've had with an artist that's been memorably gratifying because of its relational nature, something that you maybe didn't expect or something that comes to mind? I mean, all of them. Uh, it's really, I mean, that's, that's, that's the fun. Uh, but on the, way, on the way up here today, I had an hour-long phone call with Ghazi Malefi from Boom Duan, and we were just talking about the concert that they did on Thursday night with Ndudu Mahatini and Jean-Michel Pilk. And that relationship between me and Ghazi, who's become one of my closest friends here, is something that like, I can really track over basically about a seven-year period. So the first year that I was here... He was a PhD student at NYU in New York and was brought to a conference that the NYUAD Institute presented on music in the Gulf. And he brought Mayuf Mishali, who are a traditional Kuwaiti pearl diving music band, a Bachner band. Uh, and I'd never heard the music before, and it sort of blew my mind. He introduced them. We ended up getting to know each other a little bit uh, there. I think we went to Art Dubai together. Uh, and just started building like the beginnings of a friendship. Then there was a class trip where uh, Andy Eisenberg brought one of his classes to Kuwait to see the musicians in the traditional Diwania. But then also Ghazi was just starting this Khaliji Jazz Ensemble. So we were there for their very first performance. And I ended up staying at his place and we got to know each other a little bit there and sp- stayed up all night kind of playing videos for one another still like back to that like uh, high school interaction uh and then started booking his band to do kind of small shows at the art center and then in 2018 uh we did the cuban Collegi project uh and arturo farrell who leads afro-latin big band uh he came here first to meet some of the uae-based collaborators and then he and i went to kuwait and spent time with ghazi and again like it was a constant building process. And so the sort of commissioning, like with Arturo and the Cuban Collegi Project, I'd worked with him several times in New York. So we had that level of trust. And then there were kind of new relationships. And then I got to really sort of see what happened with Boom Dewan. And so then when we wanted to do something more, then we started thinking about, all right, who are, who are kind of new collaborators that might capture some of the magic that was there in the Kumakliji, but create something different. And that's where we settled on Nduduzo Makatini. 
and last year in the middle of the pandemic uh, we moved forward anyway it was clear that nothing was going to happen in person they created a three continent recording and a suite called minarets that they've released commercially now and it's beautiful but all of that is sort of through all of these incremental steps of getting to know one another personally getting to know one another kind of creatively kind of understanding what is the right way to support the development of the project uh, and also what is the way to uh, having the trust so that when things aren't going super smoothly that doesn't derail it but you can sort of you've got the tools to then actually kind of keep it moving forward so that you know when there is when there is a speed bump it doesn't halt the process I think that your philosophy about not making it transactional, like when you have artists actually welcoming them, welcoming them, actually having a relationship with them, I think that's what makes the program at the Art Center so successful. Um, and kind of moving away a bit from that, I wanted to ask, have you ever felt uninspired or had a block? All the time. Yeah. I mean, I think that, I know there, there's been a lot of conversations in, in previous editions about imposter syndrome and, and that idea that that never goes away. And I think there's that version of it that as a curator you feel like all right I've, I'm just repeating myself I'm just using I'm like falling back on the same ideas and part of it is you do build relationships with artists and you want to continue on so it's sometimes easy to get caught with oh am I just you know am I just kind of falling back into old patterns but you know but I think there's also a challenge in that but often uh I think especially when I was at the summer festivals uh, where I would at Lincoln Center and at summer stage it would be like a month to two months of intensive work and then like 10 months of of planning and seeing a lot of work. There would always be a point that I'm like, there's no way it's like last year was the best. Yeah, last year was the best, you know, kind of the best I could do. And next year is going to be crap. And I just I've got no more new ideas. Uh, and then eventually what happens is I, I tend to not, not curate to a theme. I tend to sort of find some projects that I'm interested in, uh, sort of plant some tent poles. And then what the, what the season is about starts to sort of emerge as you're going on. So it's not being imposed, but it's sort of, all right, I start to notice what kind of work I'm attracted to and see are there certain narratives and then all of a sudden the inspiration comes and usually it's because there's like one project that oh all right we're going to do this now I have some ideas again but there's big points of time where it's just like you just feel like you're trudging along and you have sort of no idea and feels it can feel really uninspired well it's reassuring to know that even you feel like that sometimes um is there a story that you will never get bored of, like simplified, like a story that you think there's always a new take on that's always interesting? I mean, you know, coming of age stories are always going to be interesting to some degree. And sometimes they'll be more interesting, sometimes they'll be less interesting. But like in kind of in both the universality of that, but also all of the particularities of that. And we were talking about that kind of earlier, that combination. But I think those moments of kind of major life changes and and sort of and becoming an adult or becoming middle age or like those stories of of sort of reckoning and personal transformation, I think because 
the specific ways that they play out will be different, but everybody's gone through somewhere or another of having to contend with how do they feel about the families that they grew up in? How do they feel about the families that they're, they're moving into? You know, how do they link the two or separate the two? Like those are things that, that will always be interesting if it's well told. Hmm. I'm curious what, what your experience of change in the local environment has been since you've been here seven years, I think seven years is a, a big period of change in a country like this where things are so super up and down, super tumultuous, very formative stages, I guess, of its cultural development. So you've, you've seen some, uh, and I wonder what your take on that change is and what you've noticed. I mean, I think one of the things that I talk about is that this is a place where you can actually see the change in real time. Uh, and, I feel lucky that I've been able to be a part of that and, and hopefully be a, a catalyst for it. Uh, the place where I've probably seen it the most profoundly has been rooftop rhythms, which pre-existed. So when I moved here, some of the people that I first met in town just said, "Oh, you know, the the place. If you want, if you want to understand what's happening in the in the grassroots." kind of performance scene you've got to go to rooftop rhythms so pretty early on i went and it's an open mic mostly spoken word some music uh and at the time i first started going i still remember the the first time i went it was a hotel by the grand mosque outdoors on the steps and first i walked in i was like i had no idea that there were this many black people in the uae it was a very it was it there was a sort of african-american aesthetic that i was not expected uh, and it and it was really exciting. And then it was a poetry slam that night. And I still remember the two the two finalists in the poetry slam were Salamol uh, Atas, uh, Emirati spoken word artist, and Saral Suki, who is Palestinian Canadian, uh, who also incorporates a lot of uh, of ASL. She works a lot with the deaf community, and and so they were sort of the final the final uh, competitors. And so like that memory was really profound. But it was in a public space at a bar, and so it was also constrained in a certain way. And I started going regularly, got to know Dorian Rogers, who runs it and founded it. Uh, and then at some point in the fall of 2015, he came to me and said, oh, we, we lost our space in the hotel. They keep pushing around because, you know, because poetry audiences don't drink a lot and bars surprisingly want people to drink. So can you give us a home at the university? And we brought them in uh, as a one-off and then realized something special was happening. And I think what happened is once it moved outside of a bar and onto the university, there was a sense of first, uh, it was not halal, right? It, like, it was something that people could come to, and there were a lot of people who might have been writing poetry, were interested in going, but you know couldn't or wouldn't go to it in a bar. So the audience really broadened. But also there was a sense of within the university, uh, it was more protected, and that uh, people could express things that they wouldn't do in as open a space as, as the, the hotel bars were. And really, like you would see month to month, uh, I'm going to make hand gestures now that you won't see on the podcast, but you know, I would, I would be kind of someone like stepping over to a line and like, can I do that? And they do a piece and it's really well received and they don't get shut down and they kind of, and they're really affirmed by the audience. And then the month after that, somebody who was in the audience who saw that happen said, oh, well, if they did that, well, what if I step over there? You know, and literally like month after month, 
I would watch the sort of watch the discourse open up. And there are and there are certain individuals who I think also really did that. Uh, Nabiha Nahyan, like I watched her through all four years of university, really like working out, uh, you know, a lot of issues and kind of anger and discovering herself as a feminist and, and talking about family relationships and struggles with wellness and she gave so much so much permission to so many other people and I've like I've watched that filter through the community so things like that are extraordinary uh part of it is also the longer I'm here the more I get to know the local artists when I first got here I was new uh there were no places to go find other people so it was difficult and a lot of our early programming was very much importing artists from abroad and right around our fifth end, our fifth season, we were starting to make that shift where there were local artists who had been in our audiences and been at the performances and sort of had expanded toolkits about how they want to make work. And then we started, you know, pieces like Rima Almanhali and, and Joanna Settles, Al Rahil, or uh, Philip Rashid, Soul Trotter came to us. He was in the audience for a thousand uh, a thousand thoughts which was uh chronos quartet with filmmaker sam green who specializes in documentary film as a live event he did a workshop with sam and then he came to us and said i want to propose a piece to you it's a live documentary that's using film but live b-boying and live breakdancing and spoken word and music and so he was sort of adapting this kind of very idiosyncratic approach but to tell a story that was uniquely about the UAE as a magnet for artists from all around the region. So things like that, I think, is also something that I've really seen that change. And uh, I think the pandemic also sort of accelerated it. There have been a lot of conversations about, especially when borders were closed, about how important it is to start really investing in the local ecosystem. Thinking about pre-pandemic times and during the pandemic, what is it like for you to curate this program at a university and NYU isn't like NYU Abu Dhabi isn't like other universities because the it feels like a whole island a whole world just for NYU and although I think the community in Abu Dhabi and Dubai like the programming extends far beyond just NYU but what has it been like for you to work with the NYU community so I think one of the hardest parts about the pandemic is that everything shut down right so we it was the 2019-2020 the season, it was our fifth season. I started really feeling the sense of confidence. Like we were really hitting our stride. The audiences were super responsive. I think that that sense of the gap between town gown, as they would call it in the, in the US, but that sort of that idea of the university as an island unto itself. I think we had really started to move beyond that. And then the pandemic happened and then you know, the walls went up for everybody in their own homes and then also you know the university itself uh also then became you know quite closed after you know even though its goal is to be open and so now we are really trying to sort of re-engage and reintroduce ourselves to a lot of people and and the population has actually shifted you know, we've got two years of students who came to NYUAD who've never had a relationship with the art center because they were they were on campus but everything was online I think the early pandemic, we made a very quick pivot to 
I just said pivot. Uh, we made a very, <laughs> we made a very quick shift to online programming. Uh, the first was actually rooftop rhythms because it was really like it felt so important to reconstitute that community. Uh, but then I started really getting excited by the idea of. Uh, pushing new forms uh, so we commissioned or co-commissioned work that was one-on-one -on -one theater that was a telephone call for two individuals or live real-time one-on-one digital theater or there was a choral piece that was based on interviews with community members that was then assembled in spatialized audio and experience on the headphone so it you felt immersed in it but it was a pre-recorded so I got excited by that and the reach of that was totally global. When we started moving online, CNN was covering rooftop rhythms. You know, we, uh, the very first show in our first season was a concert version of Toshi Regan's opera based on Octavia Butler's Parable of the Sower. Uh, we then presented the world premiere of the full opera, but during the early part of the pandemic, we took the archive of the original first concert and reshared it but we did it in real time and Toshi encouraged us she wanted to bring a bunch of the organizations uh, that had been supporting different versions of Parable and so we ended up cutting deals with the Singapore International Festival of the Arts with North Carolina Carolina Performing Arts at UNC Chapel Hill with uh, UCLA Center for the Art of Performance and we scheduled it like a performance uh, premiering on Facebook and YouTube, and all of the institutions that were champions of that work all pointed to the same performance, and Toshi was there in the chat, as were other members of the cast, and we were watching with people from about 15 different time zones, uh, all watching the same recording from five years ago, and feeling like completely present, completely live. We had a live Q&A with Toshi afterwards. There were a thousand people watching the Q&A, and so that was like, again, that question of like, are we restricted by this? There was something that was really liberating about that too. Crazy. I'm realizing now actually your first season was my first season at the Arts Center. Parable of the Sower was You were, you were in the, for the audience for the first one? Yeah. yeah. Right. <laughs> I'm actually going to go see it in Boston right after Venice. I'm like, I'm flying into Boston from, uh, from Venice to see it for the first time in five years and to see what's happened to the piece. So, yeah. Cool. I think it's interesting that the shift to the online world or just like pandemic uh, the pandemic effect um has broadened the audience so much but it also made it a lot smaller sometimes like the telephone call that you're talking about can you explain that a bit yeah um so one of the things that i that early on when i started sort of coming to terms with the trauma that we we're all going through was sort of accepting the fact that I was a little bit inspired by the creative constraints and actually really deciding, all right, I'm going to lean into this for a while. And so 600 Highwaymen are a theater troupe that we had worked with previously. We brought an incredible piece they did called The Fever. And they had proposed uh, what was planned as a trilogy called, uh, and now I'm mixing it up with Kronos. It's either A Thousand Ways or A Thousand Thoughts, one of the two now. Uh, but the part one is a telephone call. And, the, and they work with what they refer to as scores that are, it's essentially, it's not quite a script, but it's scripted questions. And so the idea was that it was two strangers who would call into basically a conference call number. And then there would be a robotic voice that would give them prompts to lead them in 
a conversation, not not like a not an interview, but uh, sort of two parallel conversations. Some of it there was a little bit of a of a scenario that you're on a road trip and the car breaks down. So there's a little there was a little bit of a narrative. But also look out the window and describe what you see or, you know, can you find something that, that's yellow? And so different ways to sort of pull out a picture of a person that you will never see, that you will never know, that you might walk past on the street, that you might never, ever see or encounter again. But it was about, uh, A, creating an artistic experience that didn't require, didn't require a screen and that would actually take you away from the screen at a period where people were completely mediated by it all the time. And that also when people's worlds were completely constrained by the barrier of their home could actually allow you to meet a stranger because that was one of the things that people couldn't do. You couldn't meet anybody new uh, during, during especially the early part of the pandemic. And so it was really beautiful and it was odd and poetic and you know the questions that they that they would pose uh were really provocative and 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 beautiful and haunting uh and it's uh, again like going back to the hyphens it's really hard to explain what it is you know but then when when you are on the call then you grasp it pretty immediately but it's just hard to it's hard to kind of explain how it's theater when it's really there is no audience other than the two participants uh, and they're just performing and audiencing at the same time and how much of these conversations did you get to hear none only the ones that i was in and that that for me was actually really difficult because part of my joy in being an arts presenter is to sit in the audience and watch how the work is being received. And that's, you know, that is, that's the payoff. And that's also how I know if I've done a good job or if I've failed or somewhere in the middle. Uh, and I didn't have any of that. So then I just had to trust that hopefully someone will put something on Instagram or on Twitter or something and I'll get a little bit of positive reinforcement, you know. <laughs> but yeah, because, because there is, there is a part of the, you know, I don't ever want to, rely on looking at attendance figures to judge whether I've done a good job or not. And, you know, especially, you know, we did a lot of micro theater, right? And so uh, in to with Toshi, there was a sense of scale. Wow, we had like three, 4,000 people watching at one time and 1,000 people in the Q&A. And there was a sense of that's the largest one-time audience we've had at the Art Center. But a lot of the other pieces are for one audience member at a time, you know? And so it's not about, it's not about Football and traffic. It's about sort of a quality of interaction and a depth of engagement, and again, experiencing work in a way that is novel. That is, you know, that's something that people haven't experienced before. Yeah, and I think when people talk about moving away from the institution, I imagine that this is one way to to combat like negative things about the institution is to focus on individuals and focus on the audience and give them back some power and care and attention and and i would also say that only an institution could actually support work like exactly. that right like yeah. there's no economic model whatsoever that if the cost of mounting that production which felt really simple and i talk about it as being a conference call there's actually really really complex back end to actually for people because at that time uh, the students at nyuad were all over the world everyone was back in their home countries we had to really think about access and how can everybody participate in it. We had a lot of classes that were assigning it. We wanted to make sure that people could actually 
work. There was a lot of complex technology, but also you want to make sure the artists are being compensated. And for something that there are two, in that case, there were two audience members for every performance, there was no way you could ever price it remotely in a way that would make it have economic, make economic sense. So then it really was about the institution saying we want to invest in these artists because I think 600 highwaymen are, are brilliant artists uh, and we want to connect their work with our community because I think that it really fills a need, like a really profound need, particularly at that moment in time. Absolutely. And to finish off, if there's a student at NYU who for some reason or another has not attended any programming at the Arts Center yet, and doesn't intend to. What would you say to try and convince them to come? I mean, I spend my life trying to convince people to come <laughs> to things. Uh, I think it's just, there are people who, I actually had a conversation with somebody the other night who said I, I was never a performing arts person. And he's come to two events now at the Arts Center. And he's probably in his 30s, maybe. And it was like, he's only seen two pieces in his life and he's like, I think I might be becoming a performing arts person. Uh, I think that the work that we're presenting, I think arts in general, is either going to be emotionally moving and meaningful, it might be intellectually stimulating, it might connect to other things that people care about, whether it's political points, whether it's aesthetic or, you know, or formal issues. Uh, a lot of them are really fun, you know, <laughs> like I think I think sometimes I forget to talk about the fact that the, the shows that we're presenting are really fun, too. Uh, but uh, but ultimately, I feel like there is an intimidation that people have around contemporary art where they feel like it's there's such a push to uh, to sort of obfuscate and make kind of make contemporary arts obscure that people then feel like, oh, if I'm not trained in this, I'm not an expert in it, then I can't appreciate it. And first and foremost, as a curator, I come from the standpoint of like, I'm a fan, something inspires me and I want to share it. And that I kind of the sense of just, just try it, just trust it. And you might not like it, but come anyway, you know, and, and see what you get out of it we you know we a few years ago came on this uh, come curious leave inspired as our tagline and for me that was very much the invitation is that when people look through our calendar most people won't have heard of 80 to 90 percent of the artists when they start reading all these hyphenated descriptions they will have no idea what the show actually is going to be uh, and that's in part by design. And I so I want that to be the exchange is that is that there's just an openness to a new experience. And I do think in the UAE, partially because it is in flux all the time and because there are so many people who have made a decision to come here from somewhere else. But even people who are born and raised here are also experiencing the fact that it's reconstituting itself constantly. Uh, so that sense of constant newness and novelty is a big part of it and then the the offer and hopefully the promise is that it will be inspiring but uh but i also you know i want people to come just because it's uh hopefully will be rewarding and not and not that they have to like everything that i put out you know and everything that's on our stage might not be relevant but but there'll be something that will make their time well spent Good answer. Yeah. 
I'm gonna send this to all my engineering friends. But okay. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I in like in our first season, they're like we started presenting contemporary dance in in a place where there'd been almost no contemporary dance. One of the first shows in that first season was a solo by Huang Yi, a Taiwanese choreographer, with an industrial manufacturing robot. And there is a KUKA. And there is a KUKA so in good. one of the engineering labs. And that, like, yeah, you don't have to know anything about dance, but to see uh, an industrial robot that's usually used in a manufacturing process turn into an expressive anthropomorphic creature and to see what felt like this beautiful organic duet when, in fact... Every single second of that robot's movement was was hand programmed by the choreographer. Like that's astounding. So that again, entry points for people who don't think it's relevant to them, but will find it relevant. Or Holocenes, which you might have seen, yeah. which was you know a piece in a twelve ton tank of water that's about rising water levels and global warming, and uh, and again is a sort of a form of art, a durational performance installation that nobody had seen before. Uh, and that, those are the things I think that were most magical. Those are both super, those are so memorable uh, and very awesome performances. See the future I think would you rather be misunderstood after death or forgotten after death oh I would rather be misunderstood I, I collect all these scraps because I have this sort of perverse idea that my legacy is important so <laughs> yeah let it be misunderstood um, telekinesis or telepathy telekinesis I think that uh, actually back to parable of the sower that that like in Power of the Sower, she had hyper empathy, and so she sort of t- took on the feelings of everybody around her. And I think the telepathy, I think the same thing. I think that would be sort of too much information. There's already enough chatter in my mind. Uh, would you rather be 11 feet or 9 inches tall? I've never been tall, so I guess I'd go for the 11 feet version. Yeah. I'm, getting, I'm getting approval. I feel like this is it's what rare. Answer, too. Yeah, no, it's most the people rare. want to be small. Most people want to be small. Why is that? I don't know. I think that means that they can be pocket sized, they can be anywhere, fly on the wall kind of situation. But yesterday, or when we interviewed Nadine, she said 11 feet. She's like, I love that vantage point, having some distance from, from things and looking at things from above. Yeah, and I, you know, I, I moved off campus and I moved into town, and I live on a fairly high floor in tourist club that's sort of you know where a lot of the a lot of the buildings were like nine stories high and i'm in the 20s uh and i actually yeah i i love that sort of vantage point you're still close enough to feel like you're connected to it but you i get to see further <laughs> so you're already there right? i'm already there <laughs> okay thank you so much bill that was thank a you. pleasure speaking with you great you too thanks for the invitation